Good morning, Westside Family Church. It is so great to see you. Word is getting out of the amazing mission that God has placed us uh, on. We call it unshakable in these next two years, and it's all rooted in this thing called the heart of Westside. We're going to put it back up on the screen again and give you a chance to shout it out with me. Some of you don't need it. You got it all memorized. Ready? Here we go. We are God's family, loving Jesus, becoming like Jesus, sharing Jesus, to raise up Christ-centered families in our city and beyond. How? By wrapping God's family around your family. That is what we're all about, and our unshakable mission includes building a uh, care center that's going to be right on this property here in Lenexa, and we're going to be breaking ground not too long from now. It's not, as a lady asked, it's not a men, uh, mental health clinic uh, where you can, it's open 24 hours a day, but it is a care center that's going to be not only available to Westsiders, but to everybody in our community that we might be able to really tackle in Christ's name the struggle that Kansans particularly are having with mental health issues. We are dead last in the country with struggles in these areas, and we are going to go after it in a big way. In addition to the care center, we're also mobilizing Westsiders in smaller communities around elementary schools, people who live in those areas, to be the hands and feet of Jesus to each other and to the people right there in their community. And so we're launching a brand new area community uh, this morning. It's in the East Venue. Uh, it's for those people who live in the Manchester Park Elementary School area. And uh, they're meeting right now with their area community shepherds. And uh, if you are in the Manchester area, and I'm going to pray in a moment, if you want to slip out and go over there, that would be great. They're going to meet for four weeks, and then they're going to officially launch, which is super, super exciting. Now... This summer, Dan Diebel uh, did a great series on the questions that Jesus asked. And as it turns out, Jesus asked some really great questions. We thought it would be good to turn the tables and give you a chance to ask questions. And so we've done that. So you see, because one of the challenges of preachers and teachers is that sometimes we do an amazing job answering questions that nobody's asking. So this series is going to guarantee that we got our crosshairs on what you are thinking about. So you submitted some really great questions, and we have put those into six total categories, and we're going to cover uh, one topic each week. The topics are, let's put them on the screen uh, today, confidence in Christianity. Uh, next week, the topic is sexuality. Uh, I passed that one off to Troy Kennedy. Uh, <laughs> The third week is on violence in the Old Testament. You had questions about that. Then the problem of evil, questions about God, and then I'm going to wrap up on a pretty simple topic. Shouldn't be a problem. Politics and culture. Why did you have to ask questions about politics and culture? Now, you ask a bunch of questions. We can't get to all of them in the time we have on Sunday morning. So Troy and I are putting out a, a, about an hour-long podcast where we're riffing on some of the questions we can't get to on Sunday morning. And you can simply go to Westside Family Church slash podcast, and every week you can hear uh, those as you're going about uh, your day. I think that'll be super helpful for you. Okay, we're going to drop into the first week, Confidence in Christianity. Let's pray, and we'll dive right in. Father, we come to you right now, and we're so grateful that we can gather together uh, in freedom to worship you, and now we 
with that privilege, we want to just say to you that we are making the decision in this right moment, right now, to open up our minds and our hearts and our hands to you. You're going to speak truth to us today, and right now we've already decided that we're going to embrace it, and by the power of your spirit, we're going to walk out of here and live it. By the power of your spirit, we pray this in the name of Jesus and all who agreed said. So a burst of thunder caused a little girl to rush out of her room and stand in the doorway of her parents' bedroom. She shouted out, Mommy, I'm scared, I'm scared. And the mother, half awake and half unconscious, said, Go back to bed, honey. God will be with you. And the little girl sat uh, stood there for just a few moments, and she finally said, Mommy, I'll stay in here and sleep with Daddy. You go in there and sleep with God. <laughs> right? <laughs> I love that story. Sometimes it is hard to wrap our minds around the idea of God. Sometimes it's hard for us to wrap our arms around the idea of God. And so we're going to answer questions that you had related to your confidence in God and your confidence in Christianity particularly, and we're gonna address four of the questions that you ask. Uh, you can uh, go to the Westside app where there'll be some notes. You might wanna do that today because it's gonna be, uh, we're gonna be flying. Now, the very first of four questions you ask is, why are there so many religions and how do we know ours is the right one? That's a great question. Uh, the answer is, because it is. Okay, the next question we're gonna ask, and it's just kind of... <laughs> The truth of the matter is, there are over 4,000 religions to choose from. How do we know ours is the right one, or does it have to be the right one? So here's some things that you want to write down. First of all, the Bible acknowledges that there are other gods. As a matter of fact, God himself that we worship acknowledges, in fact, that there are other gods. Throughout the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, you'll see the acknowledgement of gods like uh, Baal, Chemosh, Dagon, Marduk, Asherah, and Molech, Moloch. Those are just a handful of the gods that are acknowledged in the Bible. Essentially, we do not see a lot of atheism in the times of the Bible. Psalm 53, one says, a fool says in his heart, there is no God. A fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now the reality is, many of these 4,000 religions and gods are really not gods, but really gods that we've made up. They don't actually exist, but there are angelic beings that are super strong and super real that oftentimes we make into gods because they're more powerful than us. So we mistake them as the one true God. And sometimes we just acknowledge anything or anyone that we worship has become a God to us. And the Bible acknowledges that we have in our life gods other than him. But here's the second thing you need to know. The God of the Bible declares he is the one true God. Consider Exodus chapter 20 and verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. There are other gods, but you shall have no other gods before me. And then Joel chapter 2 and verse 27. I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other we learn about this kind of unique characteristic of God that you wouldn't expect, and that is he says he is a jealous God. 
and he will not share your allegiance. If you decide you want to worship another God and the God of the Bible at the same time, say 50-50, God will say to you, go 100% with the other God. I will not share. I will not share. As a matter of fact, uh, this is something you need to write down for principle number three. Logically, there can only be one true God. As soon as you put uh, two gods together and one is different than the other, particularly more all-knowing and more all-powerful, that is the one who becomes the one true God over this one. So it is illogical to think that there is more than one true God, and that's called monotheism. Mono meaning one, theism meaning God, one God, one God. Matter of fact, in 1 Kings chapter 18, we get a good idea of how this comes down. The prophet Elijah is challenging the prophets of Baal, one of the gods, to a contest to see who is the one true God. He says to the people, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. So he sets up a contest. The prophets of Baal are to take a bull and place it on an altar, and Elijah will do the same thing. Whoever's God uh, consumes the bull by sending fire down from heaven will be declared the one true God. And so the contest begins, and the contest ends, and guess who won? The God of the Bible won, named Yahweh. And so they declared him that day the one true God. Here's another principle. There are only five monotheistic religions in the world. So we now have taken you from 4,000 plus religions down to just five for consideration. Those religions are Judaism, Islam, Christianity, Sikhism, and the Baha faith. Those are the only five real logical choices that you have. Consider this, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, three of the monotheistic religions, all worship the same God. Yeah, the God of Abraham. Judaism calls him Yahweh, Islam calls him Allah, Christianity calls it the Trinity or the Father, Son, Holy Spirit as revealed in Jesus. Now they all three have a different idea about the God of Abraham. They call him by different names and they certainly have different ideas on how to have a relationship with the God of Abraham. Now you can study all five of these monotheistic religions to determine uh, which one you believe is the one true religion, but I'd like to make it simple for you. Jesus declared in John chapter 14 and verse six, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Here Jesus is declaring that he is the revelation or the revealing of the one true God wrapped in flesh. Notice he did not say, I am a way, a truth, and a life, but he limits our options and he says, I am the truth and the only way. And so he declares that it's my way or the highway. Now, principle number five, here is the only decision you have to make. Listen in. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Did Jesus rise from the dead? If Jesus rose from the dead, then he is the one true God. Look no further. However, if you do not believe 
Jesus rose from the dead, then Christianity is not the one true religion for sure, and you need to move on and search out the other four. But as for me and my house, we believe that Jesus rose again from the dead. What say you? Question number two. How do I know if I am a Christian? How do I know if I'm a Christian? That is a good question. And some might even suggest it's the most important question of all. Here's a definition. A Christian is one who has received the promise of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9 say it super clear. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Here we see in the teaching of Scripture that your salvation, becoming a Christian, obtaining eternal life, has nothing to do with your good works. It has nothing to do with you being good enough. It has nothing to do with you coming to church often or giving money. It has nothing to do with the notion or idea that God's going to grade on a curve. And I say this over and over again because this is the number one thought that people had. They go through their life. They watch the news. They see like an axe murderer and says, well, I'm better than that guy. Certainly, like in school, they're going to grade on a curve. I'm going to stand before God and say, I'm not like that guy. And you're going to have a rude awakening that God said, that's now how we keep score. You come, to, you come into a relationship with the one true God and become a Christian through placing your faith in Jesus. Now the question is, how do we place our faith in Jesus? There's a number of scriptures that talk about it, but the plainest one in my estimation is Romans chapter 10, verses nine and 10. Listen up. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So it's two things. One, it's an inward belief, not from here, but from here, that you believe Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, And secondly, it is an outward confession to the world that you have embraced this in your heart. In the scriptures, the primary pattern by which one outwardly confesses is not only through their mouth, but also through the act of baptism. Now, the Bible says that if you have done this, then you are a Christian. Hard to believe. But you are. But James throws a wrench into a whole discussion when he writes in his little book, but faith without works is dead. Really? Seriously? Paul says it doesn't involve works, and now he's saying if you have just faith but no works, it's dead. That's confusing. Here's what he's saying. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that instantaneous with that decision, 
the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, takes up residence within our life to empower us to actually live out the Christian life, not in our own strength, but in the strength of the Holy Spirit as we yield to his internal presence with us. This is what John, 1 John chapter 4, 13 tells us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit. The notion or the idea is that a person who has the living God inside of them, at the moment they place their faith in Christ, it is impossible for that person to continue to live precisely how they lived prior to them placing their faith in Christ. It's impossible to place God inside of us and act like the same knucklehead as we were before we placed our faith in Christ. James is saying, if after placing your faith in Christ, there has been no difference in your life, then something is not adding up. The works here do not save you, but rather the works give evidence that you are saved and that the spirit of the living God is within you. Am I making sense? So you are saved by faith and not by works, but if you have no works, it gives evidence that the spirit of God is not in you, and therefore it gives evidence that maybe there wasn't a genuine commitment to begin with. I've seen this over my years of being a pastor. I've seen people who, who place their faith, quote unquote, in Christ because of the pressure that their parents put on them. I've seen, actually have seen this, where a guy will accept Christ to get the girl because she wants to marry a Christian guy, so he becomes a Christian guy for the express purpose of getting the girl. Yeah, I've seen it done. I've seen people confess Christ uh, under peer pressure. They go to a camp and everybody's doing it, and, uh, and so they accept Christ, and, uh, but then nothing ever changes. This happened with a family member uh, of, of mine. Uh, the mother was concerned about her daughter, a relative of mine. So when I went to visit them, we sat at the kitchen table and she said, Randy, get her there. <laughs> so I laid out my best stuff and, uh, and I led her through a prayer. Even after that, uh, we went out to their swimming pool and I baptized her. But the entire time I could see in her eyes, she was doing this for her mother and not because she actually believed it. And sure enough, not once have I heard her declare the name of Jesus or show any interest in him whatsoever. It is not for me to judge, but it is my opinion that it's likely that that wasn't a genuine confession of faith. Amen? The third question is a good one. Can you lose your salvation? Can you lose your salvation? That's a good question. Okay, you've taught me how to become a Christian, how to be saved, but now can I lose it? There are um, several Christian denominations with very thoughtful people who study the scriptures who believe that you can. Namely, uh, they are uh, Methodist, uh, Wesleyans, uh, Pentecostals, and Church Christ. Those are four denominations with very thoughtful people. So what I'm saying is my point of view as I study the scripture. As I have studied the scripture over all of these years, looking for the truth, not the answer I want, but for the truth, it is my opinion that the answer is no. You cannot lose 
your salvation. Once saved, always saved. Let me invite you to consider two foundational scriptures. John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And then John chapter 10. Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. If you're taking notes, write this down. Once we say yes to Christ, the Father adopts us, and our salvation is now in his hand. It's now in his hand. Let me tell you a story that might help you to connect with this. So I have a really good friend in San Antonio by the name of Bruce Bowen. Some of you who are into basketball might remember Bruce Bowen as a player for the San Antonio Spurs. And every year he was voted by the players as the best defensive player in the NBA. And we were buddies. As a matter of fact, just a little aside, uh, one evening, one day he called me and they were playing uh, at, at, in, in San Antonio and Bruce asked me to come over his house and help him with a pregame routine. And I looked at my wife and said, man, I'm 5'8", he's 6'6". I mean, how could I get him ready? But he might have heard about my years in junior high school as a, <laughs> as a point guard, you know? I mean, I don't want to underestimate it. So I wasn't quite sure what the pregame routine meant. So I did put my shorts and tennis shoes in the trunk of the car <laughs> just in case. And it turned out it had nothing to do with me warming him up, but rather uh, he always has a big plate of uh, pasta and a big steak for protein and carbs. And so I ate that with him, and I went home that night, and he burned it all off while I sat and watched him and got three pounds heavier. That's what his pregame routine was. But here's the story. He uh, grew up in a broken home in California. Both parents were drug addicts. His dad was in prison for like ever, and his mom finally gave up on him, and, uh, and he started living with all these different relatives. And uh, he would make a mistake or whatever, and they would kick him out, and he would go to the next relative. Finally, he goes to college down in the L.A. area to play basketball, and this pastor takes him in and actually sort of adopts him as his son. And it's a really cool situation, uh, but there were rules that the pastor set down, something that Bruce really needed in his life, and one of them was a curfew. And one evening, uh, Bruce violated the curfew, and the next morning, his adopted father says to him, Bruce, I told you what the rules were, you violated the curfew, and now there's going to be a punishment. Bruce stands up after the conversation, goes to his room, puts all of his clothes in his backpack, and comes back out uh, with the intent of leaving. And the adoptive father says, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm assuming since I broke the curfew, it's time for me to leave. You want me to leave? He goes, no, I don't want you to leave. Now, there's going to be consequences, but a father doesn't do that. A father doesn't do that. No, I love you. We're going to work through this. You're my son. That's what God the Father is saying to us. We're going to make mistakes, right? But he's not going to kick us out because we make mistakes. As a matter of fact, if you're taking notes, write this down. I am 100% confident that we can't lose our salvation because we make mistakes or sin. I call your attention to 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, which was written for believers. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. The language there, the tense there, is a perpetual, a perpetual encounter with God. I don't know about you, 
But I rely heavily on 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. Yeah, yesterday morning we had a little, I took him up on it. <laughs> I did. And you ought to as well. And guess what? When I asked for forgiveness, he purified me and cleansed me from all sins. I did not lose my salvation. But there are scriptures that we don't have time to deal with today, namely Hebrews chapter 6 and Hebrews chapter 10, that addresses not the person who has sinned or made a mistake, but a person who falls away or wants out. The person who shakes their fist at God, angry at him for something he did or didn't do, and says, I don't believe in you anymore. I want out. I don't want your salvation. I don't want your Jesus. I don't want your heaven. I want out. The question is, will God honor that request? Not a person who makes a mistake or sins, but will God honor the request of the person who wants out? If you're taking notes, write this down. I am 80% sure that we cannot lose our salvation if we tell God we want out. I call your attention to the story of the prodigal son, where the prodigal son took his inheritance and left his father, turned his back on his father, right? Did the father turn his back on him? No. We read in the story that every day the father went out facing the direction where his son left, hoping his son would return. When his son decided to return and did 180 degrees toward his father, he discovered that the father never turned his back on him and invited him back into the family. I believe that is speaking of how God treats us even when we lose our mind and want to get angry at him and shake our fist at him and want out. He still won't let us be snatched out of his hand. However, to be totally honest with you, I'm only 80% sure about that. So my recommendation for you is don't fall out. <laughs> Continue, as the Bible says, particularly in the book of Revelation, to persevere to the end. As for me and my house, that's our strategy. Okay, last question for the day. How can I increase or strengthen my belief in God? How do I help my unbelief? I love that question. The question comes from an encounter that Jesus had with a man, a father whose son was very sick. He comes to Jesus for Jesus to heal him. The guy approaches Jesus and says, if you can do anything to help us, that would be great. Jesus said, if I can do anything to help you, are you kidding me? He says, everything is possible for the one who believes. And then the man replies, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. I can so relate to that guy. I've told you this story several times before, but I, I remind you, when I was 39, my mom, uh, uh, really almost, just in a matter of months, uh, died of pancreatic cancer. And I went back in the room after I got word that she passed away, and I looked at her body that was just shriveled up from the cancer, and I just had a moment of struggle. The idea that my mom's spirit left that body and went up into the heavens to be with God seemed uh, hard to believe. As a matter of fact, I said in my heart, 
I don't know if I really believe that. I doubt it. And uh, I went to a mentor of mine, a guy by the name of Dallas Willard, and he said, Randy, this is such an exciting place to be. I said, it doesn't feel like it. And he said, no, doubt is critical to be honest with your struggle with these fantastic ideas that cause you to pursue the person of God more and the scriptures more. He said, you ought to tell your church that you struggle in this way. And so I did. I stood up in front of the church and said, hey, I don't believe in heaven. It turns out that's not really a good idea. People have this sort of foundational idea that their pastor believes in fundamental things like heaven. Actually, it was only one person who actually didn't go to our church that went to the elders and said, you need to fire Randy for not believing in heaven. Everyone else in the church came down and said, thank you for sharing that. Because we have doubts too, but we don't ever talk about it because we don't think we're supposed to. But if you can struggle with things like heaven, well then maybe we can struggle together too. And over a period of two years, I struggled with a question and the congregation came alive. So here's my response to that question. The primary way to increase and strengthen your belief in God is to be in a Christian community where it is okay to have doubts and where you can talk openly with others. And Westside is such a place. It is such a place. Bring your doubts here and journey together. I struggled for a period of two years and I finally came to a place where I can now stand in front of you and say, I believe in heaven. It's hard to believe, but I believe it in my heart. And this is particularly true of our students because when uh, a student runs into the the junior high years, they're beginning to biologically separate from their parents. And a lot of the students who were raised in Christian homes oftentimes trusted their parents' faith and they believed in the faith of their parents. They took it on without much pushback. But now that they're biologically separating from their parents, they're asking the question, I don't know if I believe this. But the problem is it freaks out their parents and so they don't tell their parents because they don't want to be disruptive to them. And then they attend a church where they got to stay in line with all of their beliefs, you know, like a good Christian soldier. So they keep it to themselves. But they go to talk to their friends outside of the church. And particularly when they go to the university, they share it with people who are more than happy to fuel your doubts. And what we find is a lot of the students will walk away because we never provided a home We never provided a church where it was okay to doubt. But doubting, as my mentor Dallas Willard said, is a good place to be. Because then the the teenager will decide for themselves if they believe that Jesus is the one true God who died and rose again on the third day. My hope is by continuing to pursue your faith in Christian community over time, When storms break out, you can stay in your own room with the confidence that the one true God is with you. And all of God's people said, God, we now stand to our feet and we worship you as the one true God who saves us and protects us and loves us and who will not let anyone or anything snatch us who believe out of your hand. We thank you for that and now we worship you with all of our heart. Amen.